listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Seip preaches from Revelation chapter 22 with a message called, Behold, I am coming. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, last chapter, beginning in verse 12, 12, 13, and 14. This is the word of God to us this morning, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning. Thank you. If we look back at the early church as we read through Paul's letters, we see that it was in the midst of a constant struggle, danger, suffering. And in their difficulties, they were sustained by the hope of Christ's return to reign in righteousness. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22 writes, Come, O Lord. Come, O Lord. The King James uses the Aramaic expression Maranatha. And you can see in Paul's letters this anticipation of, of Christ's return. And the Christians were asking him questions regarding that and how to live this, this life in anticipation of his return. What happens to those who are already dead, they asked him. Should we marry? Should we take time to marry if Christ is coming soon? I taught as a professor, as you know, for a number of years, and I would occasionally get questions about why we need to worry about Christ's return. Why not just be concerned about our, our life today? Our concern should be how we live today, they would say, and how we focus our lives on Christ today, and that's tr true. We do need to be preeminently concerned about demonstrating our, our love for Christ, but Others may not quite as easily come to that conclusion as perhaps you have without a look into the future. It's kind of a, a sort of uh, what happens to Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol when he was transported into the future to see himself and what he had become. You see, there's no getting around it. Christ thought his returned to be of much importance that he, he spent so much time speaking about it. And the, the Bible in general is mentioning this teaching of, of salvation, but twice as often, more often than salvation, he's speaking of his return. You may be able to, to make the connection about living in anticipation of Christ's return, but others may not be that fortunate. And so we need to be able to articulate the Bible's teaching on end-time events. And we'll be speaking about that in the next month or so in a, a new series that I trust will bring us more information and knowledge about this very subject. And also to be able to answer as those questions are posed to you as they have been to me. The Bible says, bless now and always are those who love his appearing. 
And in that day the Lord shall sit upon a throne of judgment and separate the assembled multitude as a, a shepherd divides his sheep from the, the goats. And to those on the left hand he will mete out retribution. And those on the right reward. And as Paul reminds us in scripture, according to the deeds done while in the body, he says, we will receive our reward. Each shall receive according as his work shall be. And so when, even if our position is that we're living to be the best today, and what happens in all the Bible's explanation of end times events is of little importance to you. In view of this fact of judgment according to our works, it is of the utmost importance that we should know what sort of work is esteemed worthy in Christ's sight. Maybe it's because the Roman Catholic Church places so much emphasis on ceremonial legalism that we have minimized the importance of good work in the economy of the spiritual life. So if we are going to address ourselves to this issue of good works, we must first have a definition of what it is. What are good works, or should I ask the question, what are good works as Christ himself sees those works. They're not the works done in, in mere conformity to moral law, keeping the law, not running red lights and so forth, because even though there is retribution meted out for our transgression, we may get a ticket. There's obviously no reward for stopping at that red light and no reward for our obedience. Well, Christ reminds us in the Gospel of Luke that he who perfectly obeys does only what in reason is expected of him. Nor are good works such as uh, proceed from mere emotion, from impulse of our, our senses, such as, for example, protecting our family from danger or harm. And so we're not left to frame a definition for ourselves because we ourselves see good works most often differently than what Christ himself sees it. As Christ set for, um, for us in, the, in the, a, a meal uh, in this age, he set down, as you recall, a meal in the house of Simon the leper. And there came a woman, if you remember the story, who had a box of alabaster, a very precious ointment, and she broke that box and she poured it on Christ's head. And there were some that were indignant about what she had done, and they said, why was there such a waste of this expensive ointment? And Jesus replied, let her alone, why trouble her? She's done a good work on me. A good work, then, from the standpoint of Christ, our final judge and arbiter, is such as has for its motive a sincere devotion to him. A good work done in devotion for him. See, it does us no good once a month to go to whosoever gospel, for example, because we find it something that is pleasing to our senses that we are doing 
something that makes us feel good if we are not doing it in devotion to Christ. If that is not our first motive, it proceeds from a sense of gratitude for his loving kindness and it terminates on him. All that we do if it is to be considered as good works in Christ's eyes and not necessarily our community's eyes terminates on him. That's our motivation. It's done for Jesus's sake. So let's look at more facts concerning that. The first is this, we are saved by faith. We need to be certain of that. That's the testimony of scripture. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. And then in contrast to that statement, and he that believes on Jesus Christ shall be saved. And the faith referred to is a receptive grace that is that they will reach forth like a hand to receive the offer of life. And at this point, no merit is possible on the part of any person. You can't do a good work to come to Christ. All are equally undeserving of the best that any can do to take a cup of salvation and drink it. It's from Christ alone. And on one occasion, Jesus said, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that which endures unto everlasting life. Whereupon an injury was, I'm sorry, an inquiry was made, what shall we do that we might work the good works of God? To which he replied, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom God has sent. All other works, such as giving of tithes, penance, pilgrimages, sacrifices, are ineffective for our salvation. They have no relation to the salvation of the soul. Faith is the sole condition of it. And God is not to be thought of as a, a merchant where he should sell his wares. Now it is true, if you searched deep enough, you'd find in Isaiah chapter 55 where it says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the water, and you, will, you, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Oh, it sounds like he's desiring recompense, something for what he's about to give. But wine and milk, it goes on to say, without money and without cost. But notice this. Notice the invitation is not to buy with money, but without money and without price. God is the king, and as such, he gives royally. When Voltaire was at the court of Frederick the Great, he was prohibited from partaking of sugar at his table. So Voltaire, in spite, stole the king's wax candles. Frederick the Gate was great, was notorious for, for being stingy and was called the meanest of men. And we expect better things of kings. And surely the, the king of kings has no need of our petty money. 
nor does he offer his grace as quid pro quo. One of the ancients said, colum gratis non asipien. That is, I will not take heaven for granted. I'll not take heaven for granted. God is a great giver, and his unspeakable gift is to be had for the taking. Long as I live, I still will be my cry, mercy's free, mercy's free. This is the fundamental truth of Protestantism, all the way back to when it began with Luther, justification by grace, justification by grace. And here ran that line of the Reformation. As Luther, clothed still in his monastic garb, it is portrayed in, in history, and, and from a long pilgrimage, he was climbing the Sanctus Scala steps on his knees. And he heard a voice, it's acclaimed, as if it was from heaven saying this, the just shall live by faith. And he rose to his feet, a new man, with the light of a great discovery shining in his eyes. And history says what need of penance, of scourging the body for the sins of the soul, of counting the beads on a rosary, of making long pilgrimages when faith alone can save. Faith alone. And then also, nevertheless, faith and works are inseparably joined together. Faith and works, they're both necessary. And so inseparably that neither can live without the other. And so inseparably that good works are possible only to the person who lives by faith upon the Son of God. Good works are the outgrowth of faith. The outgrowth of faith. A bit like the stalk grows from the seed or the flower from the bud. The person who accepts Christ as his Savior is bound to serve him because of the constraint of love. And here's a poem, a short poem that expresses it. I would not work my soul to save, for that my Lord has done, but I would work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. It's similar to the words of a hymn that Xavier wrote under his crucifix, when it said, Thou, O my Jesus, thou didst me upon the cross embrace, for me didst bear the nails and spear and manifold disgrace. Should I not serve thee, Savior mine, should I not serve thee well? Not for the hope of gaining heaven nor the escaping hell, not for the hope of earning aught, of gaining a reward, but freely, fully, as thyself has loved me, O Lord. God works are also the evidence of faith. Our good works demonstrate it, and I have no means of knowing that there's a, a minute machine in this watch of mine, for example, except that the hands move about the dial James says, what does it profit a man, though he says he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him if a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, 
Notwithstanding you give him not these things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yes, a man may say, thou hast faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Do you see how faith acted with his works and by works faith has been made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also in other words, faith without works is an impossible hypothesis. Not by the wildest stretch of the imagination can a dead body be called a man. No more is faith faith unless it has a beating heart and moving eyes, lips to speak, and hands to do the work of God. It is moreover good works that gives dynamic value to faith. Soldiers used to refer to General Howard who fought for the Union Army during the, the Civil War as the praying general. And for a long time, however, his religion was on trial until at Chancellorsville, he walked before his weary men under fire, his arm twice broken during the battle, calling upon his men to fight for their country and to be sure that God is with us. And then they believed him. They saw the evidence of his love for country. It's through our actions that the world pays tribute to a faith. Faith preaches by works. And this is true preaching of the gospel. And then also there is this. We note also a vital relation of good works to the happiness of heaven. Good works and happiness of heaven. It's true that faith alone admits us there, but works assign us to our respective places. We shouldn't conceive of heaven as a dull and monotonous level of spiritual joy. There are gradations in heaven. We read of various ranks of angels and archangels, categories, levels of angels, principalities and, and powers and dominions are described, ranking from the humblest one in the shining host to the great archangel who stands as prime minister beside the throne. It's written, they that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And it's also written, one star differs from another star in glory. Heaven is a place of promotion. The diversity among the saints is not due merely to a difference of capacity for joy 
and service, but to a less or greater fulfillment in service here and now. Here and now. It's possible you could squeak through that front door of heaven. But it's also possible that you can open those doors widely and rejoice in the fullness of what God has for you there. All who labor for Christ shall receive eternal life as their reward, but there are infinite possibilities of variety in the measure of that life. And we're glad to remember that the the dying thief was saved in the hour of his death, and that by simple faith and, and not a single hour of his life devoted to the actual service of Christ, and he entered paradise based on that. But bless God that mercy is so free. But will anyone presume to say that heaven is the same for that penitent thief on the cross as to Paul, the apostle? Are they equal in heaven? Paul, who from the hour of his conversion gave himself no rest in service, but toiled on, suffered on, journeyed on in perils by land and sea, Scripture tells us, until worn out in faithfulness, he went to meet his master, saying, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. The thief was saved, so as by fire, as Paul reminds us, like a man escaping from a, a burning house. But Paul entered heaven with an abundant entrance and passed on to an assignment of joys and tasks proportionate to his long apprenticeship and his faithful service here on earth. The book of remembrance which is to be opened at that great day, will furnish the basis of a just system of remuneration for you and me. Every man shall receive according to the things done in the body, as Paul says. Rewards will be distributed according to merit. Whoso shall give a cup of water to one of Christ's little ones shall in no wise lose his reward, Scripture says. God is a sure paymaster. Whosoever man, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He which sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he which reaps sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. He that reaps receives wages and gathers fruit unto eternal life. And so thus heaven is what we make it. Heaven is what we make it. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. Yea, Scripture says, saith the Spirit, they do rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Their works follow them. We enter heaven by faith in Christ. But once there, our place amid the very joys and services of that celestial realm shall be determined by our record of faithfulness here and now. What peace it gives, I think, to those passing days to reflect that we are thus building for ourselves an eternal house to dwell in. And how do we know that? 
because we do more than try to just be good Christians day by day. We read his word. We pursue prophecy. We look at the end time events and we garner as much knowledge of Christ as we can that we gain more and more in the end. In view of all the foregoing considerations, it's apparent that anyone who is desirous of doing good works must begin by coming to Christ. Not that the life of a Christless man may not be abundant in natural goodness. I've known a lot of good people, better than even myself in their daily deeds and works that are not saved. But the work which is is meritorious in its relation to eternal life is not, not that which merely conforms to the moral law of this life, but that which has love for Christ as its motive and Christ himself as its end. And all other works are mere asides as to positive merit or remuneration as Christ sees it. Christ is the unit that gives moral value to life. And having accepted Christ, if we would make the utmost of life, let us keep close to Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Calvary until the eye affects the heart and the heart affects the hands and moves the feet. And let us fix our eyes on Christ and him crucified until our whole life shall be an oblation of gratitude to him who has saved us with his precious blood. And here's real success. Here's real success to serve Christ always, everywhere, doing ever the next thing for him. It's not great service that make the sum and the substance of a Christian life, but service small and great day by day, hour by hour, until he calls us. A certain saint of uh, olden times named Theodolus, he stood on a pillar 40 years, you may know the story, sacrificing his life to stand on that pillar for Christ inside of an admiring multitude of people who came out every day to watch him up there on that pillar and his sacrifice, until in his vain, glorious complacency he cried this, Oh God, where is another like me? And a voice from heaven answered, The clown Christopher is holier than thou. And whereupon the saint descended from his pillar and sought until he found that person in the crowd. What has that thou done, he asked, that God should praise thee? As for me, I've spent 40 years on that pillar, making merit unto the, the blazing suns and the storms of heaven. Tell me what good thing hast thou done? And the man answered, I, nothing. I've loved my Lord and sought to follow him, but as for good works, I can recall none. But wait, I do remember that yesterday I saw a poor wretch beaten and wounded in the street, 
and I bethought myself of Christ and of his good Samaritan, and for my Lord's sake I bound up his wounds and ran away. But I knew not that any gave heed to what I had done. Of those who sound a trumpet to herald their alms, the master says, verily they have their reward. They have it in the praises of men, not great crusades, nor the, the founding of colleges and hospitals, nor other good deeds that are blazoned abroad shall be deemed worthiest in that great day. But rather, the things that are done modestly and humbly in the name of Jesus Christ by those who care less for fame than for their Lord's well done. These shall shine brightest on the pages of the book of life. That will be a day of great surprises, I think, for some of us. And many that are first shall be last. And the last first, many shall be called to the high places who here did not wish that their faces would shine. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. Was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee, or when saw thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've come before your throne and we've looked upon your heart, and we recognize, Lord, that so much that is counted for good in this world is merely transient that the good that counts for eternity is that which is garnered from a love for you because we are saved by grace and we follow you in faith and we know your word and we seek it out. We seek to understand not only who you are but what you are expecting of us in the future, what you expect of us today and what you desire to give us in the future. Help us, Lord, to know in this life as much as we can about you. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word and to pursue prophecy as well as the practical things of the Christian life today that we might live a better life for you here and gain a great entrance in that coming day. And now be with us as we Remember in this time of communion what your son did for us and the instruction to keep doing this until he comes again. 
And so as we come, Lord, to take these elements, help us to reflect upon your love, upon the love of Christ, and to reflect upon our own life and to recognize that nothing that we can give you is worthy of that entrance, only your son, Jesus Christ. And so we come to remember with thankful hearts and praises in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.